0: Presented by RomulusIT.com, offering remote support for common computer problems. Today we're speaking with Bellator MMA President Scott Coker. Uh, Bellator has been unavailable in Australia for a few years now, but is back through Channel 10 Down Under and uh, allows for Bellator content to be aired as well as I've been noticing recently that Bellator has been uploading more and more content to YouTube, making it more available to mm-hmm. uh, viewers across the globe. Uh, Scott's been good enough to join us. I thought he was in California, but they've got another show that's happening this weekend. I'm told he's over in Connecticut while I'm in the great city of Newcastle, Australia. So how are we today oh, nice. Scott it's the other side of the world over there your evening I'm morning
1: yes it's uh, uh nice to meet you you know Australia is one of my favorite places uh, to visit had a great time there had, had some great memories in kickboxing uh, back in the day when I was uh, uh working with uh, ISK and uh, had a chance to go to Melbourne and Sydney and watch some great fights yeah, very cool. Uh,
0: well, we've got a little bit of time to talk to you today. So we're going to talk about, um, you know, the, the expansion of, of Bellator MMA, how you came aboard to, you know, take over the the organization and, and also mm-hmm. from my own perspective, having a little bit of fun and talking about those strike force days. So, um, you know, you had mentioned that uh, you were a martial artist yourself. I believe that you were in, in Taekwondo. I know the Ernie Ray's name from being a kid um, and having watched you know, movies like Surf Ninjas. Uh, I believe that was the, right. the son of the, the original Ernie right. Ray. So, but uh, right. if you want to tell us a little bit about, I guess your journey, and then we'll talk about how you got into promoting.
1: Yeah, the um, you know it's been an interesting journey, really, and it really goes back to martial arts because I feel like you know uh, I I was a student of Ernie Ray, senior, not not the son that was the actor. They're both in it. Actually, Ernie Junior and Ernie Senior were in um the um Surf ninjas movie but uh ernie senior was my instructor and i just fell in love with martial arts and I, I i had a school i used to teach children teach adults um and then um you know we when when i started getting older i was like getting pressure from my mom and my dad hey you know typical my, my mom's cream my father is american and and uh my mom was putting a lot of pressure on me. Go to school. You got to go to, you know, go back to USC. Be, you know, go be like your brother. Getting the, the, tr- the traditional, like, Asian uh, guilt from my mom. But I always felt like I love martial arts. And this is what I want to do. And I really dedicated a lot, of, you know, my whole life, really, in, in help growing martial arts and help educating people about martial arts. And to me, this is just another extension of it, really. Because um, when you, when you think about the amount of impact we can have Having a mixed martial arts, uh, you know, show on Showtime, and before on Spike TV, uh, owned by Viacom, it's it's quite a, it's you you make a big impact and and people have to understand like you know what what mixed martial arts is is that it's exactly like it sounds mixed martial arts this is just a eclectic style of of style you know of different disciplines c- combining into into one discipline which is become your own discipline and. Really, uh, that's what the future of martial arts is. It's not, uh, you know, I do believe in traditional martial arts and what it does for you as far as developing life skills and character and and uh, indomitable spirit. All the life skills are martial arts that I really, really, really believe in. But as far as the combative part of martial arts, really mixed martial arts is the future and it's proven in the cage every, every Friday and Saturday night somewhere on the planet
0: indeed it is so how did you get in, in, into promoting i mean you were a taekwondo student uh, my understanding is that, is that you're based in the you know the San Jose region and then you start promoting uh, kickboxing events and fights and and i think at, at least for people like me who are more of an, an MMA guy even though you know i'm sure mm-hmm. we can talk about k1 and where that came from but strike force mm-hmm. um I guess, initially made an impact once it moved over to MMA. So what was sort of the scene in kickboxing and, and I guess the decision of what you saw, sort of this wave of, of mixed combat coming along?
1: I'll tell you, my first show that I promoted was with uh, some friends of mine. And my instructor was actually involved, Ernie Vegas Sr. and his partner, Tony Thompson. We did a fight at the um, San Jose Civic Auditorium, which at that time was the largest venue in San Jose. And it only held 3,200 people. If you can believe that, you know, now Stanley has the big shark tank, which holds, you know, 18, 20,000. But uh, so in 1985, we do a show between uh, Felipe Garcia and George Angott at the Civic Auditorium. No TV, no, you know, no sponsorship, just live, a live event, you know, where you sell tickets. Uh, but we had a, uh, a big, a big uh, support group in the martial arts community in the Bay Area. Because the Bay Area is probably, you know, at that time, probably 80, 80 to 100 schools just in, in, in the, the San Francisco Bay Area. So we would go out and, and, and basically try to get the community to come support us. So I bet you the first fight, we probably had 80% people from just different martial arts schools to come support us. And um, that fight, uh, I think we drew like, you know, 2,800 people. I think I made $4,000 or $5,000 that night. And and to me, I was I was 21 years old or 22 years old at the time going to college and teaching martial arts. So to me, I thought it was a great night. And that was the very first start. And then within a year, I had a TV contract. I'm sorry. And within a year, I started doing fights for an organization called P.K., which is Joe Corley. And, uh, you know, they had fighters like Ray McCallum and Dan Anderson. And, and they had a fighter named Brad Hefton. Don Wilson fought for me a couple of times. But uh, it was all above the waist kickboxing like above the waist you had to kick eight times per round. everybody had to, you had to have a mullet in the 80s back then. and uh, you know it was this you know this style of kickboxing and you couldn't do any leg kicks at that time if you could imagine no leg kicks uh, when I first started. and they, had, they used to have these little cards and every time they would kick they would flap down one, two. you had to go eight, you had to do a minimum of eight kicks per round and then you could do whatever you wanted to do, and that's that was you know that's how it was. But it was on ESPN, and uh, the ratings did very well. Uh, and then eventually PK faded out, and I uh, had uh, one of the people that we were in promotion business with uh, made a call to ESPN and said, "Are you still interested in kickboxing?" And in '93, they started a show called Strike Force that uh, that we took over. And that was the beginning of Strike Force. The name Strike Force, and it was strictly a kickboxing. But we did Muay Thai. We did fights all over the world. We um, did fights in the Bay Area. Fights in New York, and it was uh, 22 shows a year, all kickboxing. It was like uh, kickboxing, you know, uh, around the world comes to uh, ESPN too. And ESPN at that time said, "Hey, we we love martial arts. It's always been a good ratings deliver for us." So you know. If you guys want to do more, let us know. But I think the most we ever did was like twenty six shows a year. And then you fast forward, and then and then I got an opportunity from that opportunity to uh, meet Mr. Ishii from K one, who, as you as you know, was you know the the legend of all the greatest fight, fights and fighters in, in in the heavyweight division at that time were fighting in Japan from K one starting from ninety three onward. And uh, they asked me to run the North America operations. Uh, and I thought about it, and, you know, eventually we worked the deal out, and so I worked for K-1 uh, for a while, and then MMA became legal in California, and I started Strikeforce MMA in 2006 with the Frank shamrock Caesar Gracie fight at the uh, SAP Arena in San Jose, so that's kind of the order, was kickboxing turned into K-1, and I really feel the Japanese working for Mr. Ishii in Japan um, was, was like going to get your graduate degree from your master's mm. you know i felt like i had a master's degree already and he what he taught me was uh the international side of the business he was a very good mentor and you know he was a martial artist himself he came from a very you know one of the best you know lineages of of martial arts uh teachers was a gentleman by the name of masoyama who was a very uh karate master right. who yeah. was uh, in japan mr ishii i'm not sure if you know this, but mr ishii was one of his final students before he passed away was a student of Masuyama, So he comes from this very good, uh, you know, history of great education. And, and I felt like, you know, coming from martial arts, you know, this, this, he, we just spoke the same language and he kind of took me under his wing and, and, and really showed me the roast, which I'm uh, forever grateful, because he was a great mentor. And then the K1 kind of starts slowing down and, you know, all the great fighters like Sam Greco and, uh, Ernesto, who Peter arts, they all started you know, kind of retiring at some point, and uh, then K1 just really started slowing down because the only uh, we're in the heavyweight division, pretty much. They, they would dabble in in welterweight, but heavyweight was their bread and butter. And uh, and then uh, we I was never going to get into MMA business, to be honest. I really loved kickboxing at that time, and and uh, I was watching MMA, and one day I get a call from the California State Athletic Commission, and he said, "We're going to start allowing MMA fights in California." And so I said, "Oh, well then." You gotta give me the first show because I've had a license here as a fight promoter for 22 years. And and they did. So they gave me the very first show in California. And that was the birth of Strike Force MMA. Hmm.
0: Uh, I, I've had the chance to talk about Masoyama. We've had um, I used to train with, with Peter Graham, who who spent time um, in his dojo, and, and I teach VJJ now. And in my it's out of a karate mm-hmm. studio where there um, a gentleman Cameron Quinn, I think, is the head of uh, like the the version of Shotokan karate that he runs over here. And it's, yeah. it's very interesting mm-hmm. that lineage because that uh, I believe it's that that was the origin of K1 was effectively I believe to put karate up mm-hmm. against the um the the best martial arts did you um prior to you know the the introduction of mma everyone seems to have kind of this light bulb moment where um they kind of realize how different free form fighting is coming from taekwondo and then moving into k1 Mm -hmm. and and ultimately mma Mm -hmm. did you kind of you would have been there to see this evolution where when when they strip it down to bare bones of how raw real fighting is was there Mm -hmm. any sort of moment like that for you
1: you know, I, I'll tell you, um, when I think about the evolution of, of mixed martial arts, it was really, it wasn't that I took, it was a light bulb moment for me from a trad- traditional martial artist, because luckily my instructor was very eclectic and he was uh, a Filipino, he still is a you know, Filipino master of of and Kali. So we would do other styles when, uh, not just traditional Taekwondo. And uh, when Gracie's came here in 93, uh, he was one of the first ones to go work out with, uh, Health Gracie and hoist Gracie. And so we started training with different disciplines. But what I will say is this is when, when hoist won the very first show, everybody in America and I'm sure around the world, except for outside of Brazil was like, Whoa, what, what, what was that? Like, how, what, what is this jujitsu stuff that you have to learn? So people started gravitating towards jujitsu and that happened for the 1st probably five, let's say three or four years. And then along comes the wrestler the Mark Coleman and the Kerr era, where they're just ground and pounding you and just, you know, and just, you know, take it to you. And so what, what that taught me was, okay, you got, you, you better wrestle too, right? You better learn how to wrestle and you better learn jujitsu. And then Maury Smith uh, comes along and starts knocking people out with head kicks. Cause he could do some jujitsu and learn how to stand back up. And he had some anti jujitsu, he calls it. And uh, he was knocked out one of the Gracie brothers with a head kick knocked beats piece Coleman. So people are like, okay, now over, it took about 15 years. So people say, okay, I gotta do jujitsu. I gotta do wrestling. I have to do uh, striking, right? Boxing and anti-boxing. And and then to kind of George St. Pierre, I believe was one of the first fighters that kind of put it all together. And now what you see is uh, a complete fighter and, the, and that the, the, the way of the art has proven itself. And if you don't know all these dip- disciplines and can put them together and someone else can, you're going to be at a disadvantage and they're probably going to get you because, you know, somebody that can grapple, that can wrestle, that can strike is going to be a very dangerous opponent to fight.
0: Uh, I do want to talk about your your time with K1 because there's not a lot of people that were around during that time of of kind of, you know, this this era that, that it grew through. When you were in Japan, there would have been organizations, um, you know, there would have been... Pancrase. I think they were both doing, um, you know, shoot and mm-hmm. fix fighting at that point in time. Mm-hmm. I think originally that's the time prior to Pride that they had the the Coliseum events, which I believe were the first events with with Hixon. Do you was mm-hmm. it was it on the radar to you that this was happening, or with with how big that K1 was, was it sort of like this this sort of you know backroom brawl thing, or, or was it on your radar at the time before you know Pride ultimately moved into that space?
1: Yeah, you know, it was, uh, Pride started in 97, I believe, and K1 started in 93, so there's a four-year gap where they, you know, there was no existence of Pride, and even when Pride first started, it didn't have a major TV deal, and it was kind of this underground thing, but a lot of fans, because of who was fighting, and they developed their own fan base, but I'll tell you, when I was doing kickboxing, and Mr. Ishii was Actually, I felt like he was trying to recruit me. I can say that as a promoter in North America, because he wanted to come to to Vegas, and they did a show with another gentleman. Didn't work out, and so he had his lieutenants fly over, and we we're trying to make a deal, and I couldn't make a deal. It's like very much I had like an entrepreneur mindset because I've never, you know, worked for other people putting on shows for someone else, and um, so I was um, coming back from Thailand. I was uh, at the Fairtex uh, gym there and the gear company. And he said, please stop by Japan. So I did. So I went to the Osaka Dome, 1997, 90, 97, 98. And um, I, went, I walked into this, this arena and I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. I was walking around going, oh my god, there's 60,000 people in here, right? And seriously, there's 60,000 people in there and if you're sitting at the top rafters, I mean, the, the people in the ring must have looked like, you know, a quarter inch tall, but the this place was jam packed and the production was unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. And I was sitting there going, wow, how, how are you ever, how are you ever going to do this? So I said, you know what, this might be uh, something that might be a lot of fun. And, you know, uh, I get to, I'll get to learn a lot from K1. And uh, I had just met Mr. Ishii for the first time. And this guy was so charming, so engaging. And uh, like I said, we clicked off because, you know, he, he's a martial artist and he has a great lineage. And I, and I you know, I believe that, uh, you know, especially being an American and going to Asia, if I didn't understand the Asian culture, because I was born and raised in Seoul, Korea, until I was nine, coming from a, a mom that's Korean and understanding martial arts, I could have never worked for K1 effectively because they were very much a martial arts uh, like run promotion. Uh, And the one thing that still sticks me to to this day, which is, I think, a differentiator between us and the other leagues is like, he always told me, he said, you have to have respect for the fighter because at the end of the day, they are the stars. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about them because they are the warriors. They're the samurai, he called them, that are stepping into the ring to compete so you have to treat them with the ultimate respect. And that's how we treat the fighters here at Bellator is really based on the way he really taught me and showed, showed me how he, his philosophy and his belief. But I, I'm telling you the, we had such a, when I say we, K1 had such a great run uh, and some of the most exciting fights uh, I've seen in my life, kickboxing, MMA, jujitsu, boxing, we're in the, we're in the K1 ring and uh to, to know that some place in the planet has fights where there's 50, 60, 70,000 people there, you know, that for a live event, for a martial arts event was really inspiring.
0: Uh, it, it, it's always seemed to me that the way that you run the organization too, when you talk about K1 is that it, it seems to be a little bit more aligned with their values of being personality and fighter driven as opposed to just a, a win loss record. And I've always felt like the, mm-hmm. the fighters tend to stick around a little bit more, which, which as an old school fan, is always quite nice because as you know there's uh there's such a turnover with fighters these days and it's nice to be able mm-hmm. to, to recognize and see some of the same faces again when um while you're working in in, in k1 pride i think uh, is originally owned by krs of and, it and is eventually sold mm-hmm. to uh, mm-hmm. Dream stage. I I had the chance mm-hmm. to recently talk to Mike Schiavello about this. Who I assume he probably would have been working with at some oh, point yeah. in time in K one. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the differences because K one seemed to be uh, a, or at least the impression that he was giving was a much more legitimately run organization versus all of the stories we that, that have come out of mm-hmm. Pride of of match fixing, you know, money being yeah. handed off in suitcases and this sort of thing. Um, were those stories uh, apparent to you, or, or what was? What were you sort of hearing between, I guess, the impressions that I have of a legitimately run organization versus its association with uh, you know, Japanese mafia?
1: Yeah, i tell you, um, you know, and, and again, I, I have no proof that that's really what the case was, just what I read in the, in the tabloids. But, uh, you know, it seemed like the ultimate that was their demise. Um, I do know there was a, a lot of uh, big bundles of cash being thrown around at that time, you know, back in Japan in the pride days. Uh, but um, you know, Mr. Ishii was uh, a karate master. He had, you know, I want to say he had 850, 900 schools, affiliate schools around the country, and that's really what his what his career was. Uh, and then when he started K-1, it was really about okay, which style was the best? You know, is it is it uh, you know karate? Is it kung fu? Is it kickboxing? And so he had this vision uh, to start this tournament, and uh, you know, he, he just exploded. And even in the popularity of, of Pride in, in Haiti, it didn't compare it to the popularity of K1. Uh, popularity, and and I'll tell you this: you know, Japan is a very different place to promote and how f- celebrities get built up or f- fighters become popular. It's 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 different there than any place on the planet. You could go, you know, you could go one win and five losses, right? But if you bring it and you bring your heart out there, they're looking to see if you're going to fight your your spirit. You how how big is your spirit going to be and if you bring it every every time they will still love you and there's no place on the planet like that because they're they're going for that respect factor you know like if you if you bring it and you show me that you care and that you're trying your best i'm still going to support you in the future whereas in america that that five five losses you'd be on your way out the door probably in australia you'd be out the on your way out the door too so um you know that's that's just how it was and i saw a fighter, you know, and when you know Bob uh, was you know somebody that was um, maybe not the best fighter. Let's be honest in K one because you know he did beat Ernesto who twice. That I, I was there he personally. Did. I watched both of those fights mm. from ringside, right? And basically Ernesto was trying to get in and knock him out, and then Bob just hit him from just with a push him in the corner. Just kept you know? jamming him into the corner. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, just you know, just swinging for the fences, right? we have a guy that's 325 pounds fighting a guy that's 230 you know and 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 that's so easy could have won that fight by you know distancing himself but he chose to engage and then he got caught and then that was it but both times it happened to him uh but my point is like when i think about bob Sapp, when i, I remember when he first came to k1 and it was sam greco that bought him uh k one from the wrestling days right okay. and uh you know i came in and i'm like this guy doesn't know how to fight you know and so he started training with matt hume up in seattle they bring him to Japan. They have these fights, but within a year uh, after he beat Ernesto, he became a superstar. You could not, you could not go have a meal with this guy anymore. You could not go and and have a cup of coffee with this guy because you would walk down the street in Tokyo and it was like being with the Beatles. You know, it's like three, four, five hundred. It's just you know they all started mobbing him, and it's you know he had deals with Panasonic, he had to deal with Coca Cola, had to deal with Pizza Hut. He was doing quite well. And then uh, you know, eventually he faded out. But uh, the popularity and the, uh, the 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 Japanese fans being um, uh, you know you know idolizing these fighters is something I've never seen before in any, any other country.
0: Mm. You come back and, and we'll, we'll take it back over to Strike Force now because I guess um you know for a lot of people that might have watched that it, it had some some truly amazing moments and, and if you only know the UFC as a brand the majority of a lot of these champions are originated in strike force. And, and the, you mm-hmm. know, the other guy that I don't want to get into is the fact that the UFC couldn't get Fedor, or, and he seems to be a staple of your, your brand for, for multiple years now. So yep. you come back over from K one, start getting into strike force. You want to tell me a little bit more about the difference in the appetite mm-hmm. with American audiences of, of how you operate and, and a little bit more about the strike force years.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, strike force was really driven on, force MMA I'm talking about uh, was really driven on the fact that I wanted to be the first one in California to do it because I feel like I've paid my dues I've been here 22 years I should be the first one to do MMA in in the state and listen everybody was trying to get that first show not just the UFC but King of the Cage and you know all, all these you know we we're trying to get le- legitimate shows done by the athletic commission legitimate venues and um, you know there's probably four or five people I would say they're trying to get that position so They gave it to me and, you know, I had a good relationship with Frank Shamrock and AKA because Javier Mendez, who owns AKA uh, was actually a a Christ student of mine way back in the day, way before. And, you know, I I would walk in his gym and in fact, Javier actually fought for me as an amateur and professional. So that's how long ago I, I, you know, we're talking, it's been like a 30, 35 year friendship with the guy, you know, it's been amazing. But so he comes from a different place and I walk into his gym and there's Koschak and there's Fitch and there's Kung Lee training there. And there's Frank Shamrock and there's Mike Swick. And, uh, you know, the champ Frank Shamrock was the teacher of all these guys. Then Josh Thompson comes into the picture and then Half Gracie had Nick Diaz Nate Diaz was just a little kid at the time. In fact, I think his third fight, my first show had Nate Diaz on the cart. If you, if you look at, uh, the, the sure dog records. So I think it was Nate's third fight, but you know, those guys had the Diaz brothers and they had um um Gilbert Melendez and they had you know this the scrap pack they had the scrap pack back then right so um I said okay well listen we should put this together and let's 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 figure this out you know like who fights who and so I sat down with Javier we literally went to a restaurant and wrote on the paper napkin like okay this guy should fight this guy and then Gilbert should fight this guy Josh should fight this guy and we just wrote the whole fight card down on a piece of paper. And I still have that piece of paper till, till this day. And I, and I used it as my matchmaking guide back then in 2006. And, and think about this, we didn't have any TV back then, right? Because it was a taboo. It was really like a taboo sport back in the day. There wasn't any major channel carrying it except for Spike TV, which is a cable network. But it wasn't on CBS. It wasn't on ABC like it is today. It isn't on Fox as it is today. It was not accepted like it was. And so we have all these great fighters in the Bay Area put to, put together for a show. And, uh, you know, we sold 18,265 tickets for that show. And uh, I think we held a record for a long time. And in fact, we might still hold a record for an indoor venue uh, as far as tickets sold. But, you know, it was it was great to walk in and see, uh, you know, all the way to the rafters packed. And like I said, we didn't have a TV deal. We had no sponsorship. And then eventually we grew into that. And, and. The second fight, it was interesting because, because of my relationship with K1 and they knew Saki Ybarra, Saki Bara actually sent over the main event for my second fight, which was Alistair Overeem fighting Vitor Belfort. And that was June of 06. Again, no TV, no sponsorship. It was just kind of, you know, we had 15,000 people that came to the show and it was a, a live event show that you had to come see in person. Uh, otherwise you wouldn't be able to see it. Uh, and then uh, You know, we're kind of coasting along, had to deal with a small deal with HDNet. Uh, And then um, along pops us another league called Pro Elite. And Pro Elite had signed some of my fighters. I call my fighters, like Frank Shamrock, Gina Carano. You know, they had signed some of the top fighters in the area. Uh, And then, you know, I was just kind of watching what they're doing. And, you know, I I don't know. I I think some of the business moves that they're making were a little bit, you know, I think I, I wouldn't have done it this way. But you know, they they ran their business basically uh, into the ground. And uh, I went to the owners of the San Jose Sharks and I said, hey, if you guys want to get into the business, this is the time, let's go buy Pro Elite because with the Pro Elite comes the CBS and Showtime contracts. And that's that's exactly what we did. I partnered up with them. I sold a piece of my company to the San Jose Sharks group and we went and we bought Pro Elite and we inherited all these great fighters with, with that uh, opportunity. And then we got our own CBS and Showtime deal. And that was a, in 2009, that was the birth of Strikeforce MMA on Showtime. And that's where we, we went and we you know, found Ty- Tyron Woodley, we found Ronda Rousey, we found Luke Rockhold, we found uh, Daniel Cormier. The Cormier story is actually very interesting. So AKA Javier Mendez and Bob Cook was managing at the time. And uh, he says, Scott, I got this next champion for you for Strikeforce. I said, really? Let's, let's meet. So we met at a local like restaurant uh, in my neighborhood, and we're sitting there, and then walks Bob Cook, who's Javier's partner, and Daniel Cormier, and he's probably 265, you know, 270 maybe. And we're talking, and, and I'm going, This guy does not look like a fighter to me. <laughs> he just he just did not look like you know, because most of these fighters are in great shape and they're you know, they they have a certain the tiger to him you know they're, they're, I said Daniel, you should just go into commentating he' like really forget all this fight stuff you should just go in the commentary I think you'd do really well no no I, I want to fight man I, I really want to do this and I uh, I had an opportunity in Beijing and didn't work out teaching at OSU wrestling and Bob Bob was like God he can really fight you know and you know give him a shot so Danny goes to the restroom and I told Bob I said Bob I don't, I don't think I want to do this like this guy this guy does not look like a fighter you know and you should just take him to the com like a commentary school or you know become a commentary and he's like no no try so anyway make a long story short then he he said just just trust me so bob is the one that brought me all these great fighters in strike force he brought me uh misha tate brought me ronda rousey like the T t-wood luke and on sorry the great- we're talking oh, crazy bob that- cook is that who the crazy bob cook yeah, yeah okay mm-hmm. So Crazy Bob Cook was the matchmaker for Strike Force for you know the first four or five years that. of this. Yeah, right. yeah, a lot of people don't know that because um, Rich, Rich came in for the last year of that time. But um, you know, when I think about the um, uh, you know, the for the early years of Strike Force sitting down with Javier, it's Javier and Bob really, but Bob is the one that said, You got to go to St. Louis and sign this kid, and that was Time Ty- Woodley. He's like, Bob would say, you better go talk to this guy because he has this girl in L.A. named Rhonda, this pretty good judo girl. I think you're going to like her. And he was like my my guy, you know. And so um, Crazy Bob Cook was our matchmaker for you know many years in strike Strikeforce. Um, but anyway, make a long story short, shorter than I'm making it, is we signed Daniel Cormier. And I think it was like $15,000 a fight. And, and, I had, and I had to fight him because I really wanted to pay him 10 because I thought he couldn't fight. <laughs> and, and then, you know, you know we we put him in the tournament as an alternate alternate like the third alternate just to you know give him some fights i remember that he wasn't even he on the, to, the
0: poster at the time I, yeah.
1: wasn't even on the poster yeah you know? and then he and then he goes out and he starts taking people out and the fight that really made me go oh this guy could be something special was the night that he fought jeff munson uh i mm-hmm. said who's this kickboxer i thought you were a wrestler you know he came out striking and aka had done a really good job working with him because he's such a great wrestler and then now he could start striking you know and, and hurting people with his hands and uh and then you know the rest is history his the rest of his career he's doing a great job and i'm, I'm proud of him but you know he started he's one of the original guys of strike force that we that what uh, we started with
0: it's uh it's very funny that you mentioned that because i got to see daniel cormier fight down here in australia i think it was his yeah. fourth fight ever mm-hmm. I, I didn't know who he was there's a there's a guy that i trained with named um uh, ben Power, who was John Kavanaugh's first BJJ instructor oh, for, wow. for SBG. Okay. Um, there's another guy that I know over at AKA. I don't know if you ever would have run into him. He's a, an Australian wrestler by the name of Dennis Roberts. And he ended up being a, a teacher over at AKA for, um, oh, for, for yeah. a while, but uh, word got around this. You got to watch this Cormier guy. Never, never heard of him at the time. I think on the card, Mike Kyle was there as well. I'm trying to think. Of yeah, who else, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And uh, I think, so they might've brought maybe a, a few guys um, uh overall all all at the same point in time and he did exactly that i think i can't even remember who he was fighting but very didn't even use his hands just use his minimal reach to be able to shoot in and was just high crotching whoever was fighting all the way around the ring it was it was it was was literally like watching a a version of wwf where he's just suplexing them all across the the ring it was it was it's awesome it it was it was amazing
1: historical look because i mean honestly when i think about about all the things as a fight promoter that i've had the ability to you know to do i, I feel very very fortunate because mm. you know i think that there's only a handful of people that really have been able to make this a career and um, it's it's not easy to do and you've seen a lot of companies come and go but i feel like i you know i, I feel like it's uh you know it's coming from the right place i've done this this is my 36th year being a martial arts fight promoter so oh. this, well, this is what not I've only done.
0: that i think the other big issue is it's so rare to get in virtually at the ground level of something and to be in there at at the starting point. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it's just fascinating, especially, um, you know, I I enjoy other sports as well, but you know, if you compare this to to baseball or or football or hockey, Mm -hmm. there isn't, Anywhere near the evolution of a sport that you're watching during your lifetime. Outside of, you know, maybe, maybe Mark Maguire or Sammy Sosa, you know, getting on steroids, there's not, you know, there's not there's not such an evolution. You know, even when we're watching it now, it's fascinating to see how they're evolving into the calf kicks, how how you can't really put up a, a shell or a Philly shell the way that boxers did, and the way that, you know, um even going back 10 years, the way that blast doubles or single legs were effective, and now it's really about mm-hmm. setting that up for body lock take. Downs and just sort of this natural evolution for for the fight game
1: yeah i i totally agree and you know if you think about this is, this is why i love martial arts like if you think if you take it back to let's say the 60s and and you looked at and you read up on bruce lee's philosophy and everything that about bruce that's what he was saying back then was mm. that the the classical mess is a mess and that you'll end up in a graveyard you know like with all yeah. your classical techniques but know that you you have to develop your own style and you can't just be uh you know this particular style because it's going to take multiple styles to be effective and i'm telling you i did martial arts in the 70s and that that is a no-no like you have to live and die by the karate guy can beat the 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 kung fu guy and the kung fu guy hates the taekwondo guy the taekwondo guy hates the judo guy i mean that's really how it was like you you really felt like oh my style is better than anything that you guys are doing and so you know, that's why I really respect Bruce and his writings, which I, I read quite often is that, uh, that, uh, he really had an outlook, uh, that was 50 years ahead of his time. If you really think about it, it's amazing. Well,
0: I've, I've got, um, Tao of Jeet Kune Do the book. I, I remember when, when I was mm-hmm. still getting into the early UFCs, I remember that, but I rewatched, um, what is it game of death? The one that's got Chuck Norris in it, where they fight in the Coliseum uh,
1: is the that's Return of the dragon, Return oh, of the, the dragon. dragon. Yeah. And
0: mm-hmm. I, I completely forgot about that because he kills him with a guillotine choke.
1: And I was like, that's "Wow, right.
0: that's yeah. I completely forgot about that." And just because I've all restored these Bruce Lee films into like you know 1080p yeah. high def, so going yeah. back and you know, rewatching a few of those. Um, y- you're talking about strike so I want to ask you about some of your favorite moments. But you you had mentioned a couple of key points there. One, you mentioned Kung. He was really really interesting to me because again, when when he rose up to fame, I was still mm-hmm. down under. I'd moved to Australia, and he seemed mm-hmm. to be one of those guys mm-hmm. who came out of nowhere it's just like the fanfare followed him i assume he must have had a following or reputation but again this is years ago so i'm I'm trying to think but i believe he was already in his late 30s by the time that he sort of went pro under the strike force brand and almost like from the first fight or two he he became sort of a a phenomenon i assume he must have had a, a a large fan base already in, in the California area. At that yeah. Time?
1: I mean, Kong was, uh, I mean, he owned the Bay area when it came to the the following that he had. I mean, he had a big following here, had a big school here, a big following. They come at all, all with their, their flag to the school. And, uh, but keep, keep in mind when I met Kong, he was fighting in uh, a show, another show that was like a Kyokushin style fight. So he did Sancho, which is sand out, which is like the Chinese martial art uh, fighting style. And it then, the belts? Um,
0: is that the same one that I think that's where you, can, where you can
1: actually throw the, and you can, yes, you could throw them. It's a, uh, it's basically that's right, uh, those were the
0: first fights that he had. I remember he'd throw like a one, two, and was, then just yeah. kind of hip toss yeah. these guys.
1: Yeah, that's right. You could do a scissor kick, you could sweep, you could do a lot of things you couldn't do in kickboxing. And then, uh, and so we would promote a lot of Kung's fights, uh, I would say in the late nineties and early two thousands. So his, the first 10 years of his career that I promoted Kung, he, he was not an MMA fighter. He was a traditional martial artist uh, that came over uh, from the fall of Saigon. Uh, I want to say 75, 76. And um, learned traditional Taekwondo. So he, that's where he got his kicks from. But he he, he evolved, obviously. Uh, and he started learning Chinese martial arts in this Sancho style. Uh, and um, But he would fight. In traditional karate tournaments, he would fight in Kyokushin tournaments. You know where they would one. The first round was in a gi, with you know just bare bare knuckle like this. The second round you had gloves, you could kickbox. The third round you could throw and do all the stuff. So these are the the K one mixed fights,
0: Jerome LeBanner versus Don Fry type.
1: Before, before they did that. Before they did that. And uh, but I saw him on TV and I said, oh my god, this guy could be a star because he's a good looking kid. He was built, and uh, and he fought just so amazing and so i was like oh he lives in san jose he lives 20 minutes from me like well how can i not know this guy because he's just in a whole different martial arts circuit so you know i got to sit down with him i said "Kung, listen we could we could put you on tv we could build you into uh you know a, a big star and and uh you know like i said the first 10 years it was just all kickboxing sancho traditional karate and then when mma became he said look i, I used to wrestle too like in junior college and and if you look closely at Kung's ears, you could definitely tell he's got those cauliflower ears that, that a lot of the wrestlers have. Yeah. And so he had enough to get up. Meaning that if you took if you took him down, he could get up. And he could fight his way and scramble. So he had that ability to 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 really be effective standing up. And and I think that's where he fought his best fights is when he was punching or kicking. Uh, he was dangerous. And doesn't mean he, you know, obviously he didn't win all his fights, but I've never seen Kung in a boring fight. Mm-hmm. this guy always brought it man he was always in shape and he always brought it and he never said no to a fight this guy was like let's go you want to do it let's go coker let used to tell me let's go and you know he's um you know you know i mean in mma if he would have started mma maybe 10 years younger you know 10 years before he got into mma uh, i think that uh you know this guy would have been the limit for him to be uh, a mixed martial arts fighter but uh you know, he's a traditional martial artist that went to combat, uh, combat fighting, and then went into MMA. So by the time he started MMA, he was probably in his early 30s, and he still had some success. I mean, you know, I thought he did a good job against some of those fights, and and uh, you know, then he I could, retired. I still have and,
0: that that rich Rich Franklin KO in my head.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. It's, <laughs> I mean, you're talking about a guy that is always working out and as strong as an ox, and you and he could punch, and he's punching with those little. A six ounce gloves. I mean, it's gonna hurt. So, um, I, I, he's one of my favorite fighters because, from a martial arts perspective, he he could do it all. Like he could do MMA, he could do kickboxing, he could do traditional karate, he could do forms, what, whatever you want to do, whatever level you want to play with kung, he could do it at a pretty high level. So, I really respect him.
0: It was also interesting to me as well because, it, from as far back as, as I can remember, he he was one of the first originators to use more traditional um stand up in order to win fights Mm -hmm. which is not a a boxing dominant way you know setting up with low kicks and teeps to then get into the inside which which was very different before guys like Mashita came in and and really set the uh you know the the modern blueprint for that um all right so can i just say you you mentioned pro elite put itself into the ground you guys took it over that that leads me to a couple questions i mean we want to talk a little bit about business so Mm -hmm. uh, tell me what you think pro elite did wrong and then of course um strike force has a lot of moments but i think for a lot of us the one that that people remember was the televised ring brawl where we we have uh, mayhem and, and jake and all <laughs> these issues so i think there's, yeah. there's probably a, a few places that we can uh, go with that
1: yeah i got a lot of good stories about all that but let's talk about pro lead first um you know they brought in some good uh, rich Chu was my matchmaker currently that was over there working for them with jd penn they had went and signed all these fighters they did they did some good moves but i i knew like when you walked into their offices back then, and you have you know thirty thousand square foot of prime real estate office space in you know in, in L.A. or West L.A. wherever they were, it's I, I just like you know th- it doesn't require it's, it's it's bigger it's bigger than it needs to be, and you know I knew that uh, they're investing in other technologies and other businesses, and and you know think about this I was like a there's like five people that worked for me at that time when I was doing Strike Four Seven Eight right you walk in they have you know probably 70 80 100 employees there but yet you know we're we're five people that know ex- exactly how to do this and this is all we do all day long and you know they're a company that has diversified goals and projects and they're doing on internet technology this and hospitals and something you know like they're trying to do all kinds of stuff and then at fighting was just part of it and um you know I love Gary Shaw. I fought a lot of his boxing fights, but you know, he he's a boxing promoter, and MMA is different. It's a different culture, and so you know, I think there was some of that going on. But I just think they they you know they just you know bled out at some point, if that makes sense, financially, and we were able to go in there and and, and uh, you know do an asset purchase for a very reasonable amount, and take over all their fighters, and take over their library, and take over uh, their contracts. and so to me, it worked out for us and I I hope it worked out for them. And eventually I think they went, you know, PK at some point, but, uh, we, uh, you know, we, we were able to bring over a lot of good talent and, and then move this ball forward. and, And that's what we did.
0: So we understand that. So, so we'll go back to this, this CBS event. Um, you know, this, um, I'm trying to think. I would Habib versus Connor Dylan Dennis who who you would know yeah. well as well. That that yeah. was sort of the uh, for for not fans who haven't been uh, involved with it longer term. This CBS event though was really, I guess, the the big thing at the time. I, I can distinctly hear, you know, Mauro Ronaldo, who's who's a, I'm from Calgary. Uh, Mauro's from Calgary as well. Um, going yeah. off about uh, you know how this was so shameful, but I mean, it, it's ratings. Did the, what was the impacts of this brawl that happened at the time for for you?
1: Well, listen it's um you know and the irony of it all is i didn't even see the the brawl i wasn't in the cage right what happened was the fight was over i started heading to the post fight press conference room to get ready for my post fight press conference you know um discussion with the media so i get to my seat and then my my uh, mike Rand, who was running our digital at the time said hey there was a big fight in the cage and i said oh well is it over yet? Yeah, it's over. So I thought, you know, I didn't even, I didn't know what to think. Like, it was OK, it's over. So, you know, it was like a little scrumish. It wasn't until later I saw it on YouTube that I saw the the how big it was. And I and as and I'm watching this thing going, oh, this is not good. This is not good. And I asked Mayhem Miller when I ran into him in the hallway. I said, man, what? Why, why would you go in the ring and call Jake out when this is like his big moment? And you should have let us know. And we could have, you know, taken precautions or whatever. And he goes, well, I didn't think they're going to jump me. I said, hold on, you got Nick Diaz and you got Nate Diaz and you got Gilbert Melendez. You got the scrap. They call the scrap pack for a reason. These guys will fight you in a phone booth, right? So, you you know they're going to come after you. And he said, no, I had not. He didn't. His defense was he didn't know that they were going to, you know, jump him, you know, gang- gangster style. He said, <laughs> so, uh, you know, that that was my mistake because I. I- you know we should have had a, a lot more knowing nick and nate and those guys are going in there you know fighting dan henderson you know it's like you know we had security and everything but it needed a lot more security and i learned a lot from that fight and uh you know we haven't had any issues really in the cage since then so you know we've been good but it, it really taught me a lot about you know you just can't take things for granted and mm-hmm. that was something that was unfortunate and you know listen it was um uh, it was, uh, you know, I told, uh, who did I tell this to? I told uh, Jake, I said, I told Gilbert this all the time. Hey, you, you guys, you know, it only, it only took me 10 years to get back to CBS and Showtime, but I'm not <laughs> going to blame you guys.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. What are, what are some of the, you know, ultimately um, Strikeforce ended up getting sold to to Zufa. And, and mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. you ended up as part of that, that contract. What are some of the milestone moments or, or the things that you're most proud of or, or remember the most about, about the brand?
1: You know, I'll tell you, it's something that uh, I still get emails. You know, every week about man, I love Strikeforce so much. It was the greatest, and 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 I'm still a fan of it. I still love it, and I still have my my hoodie and my shirt and my hat, and I still wear it proudly because if you think about the body of work that we did there uh, in a short amount of time, um, how how we actually, grew. I think we grew. The next talent. For the next 10 years in mixed martial arts like what i'm saying is like all the all the stars that came from strike force and at that time you know how it was dana was saying oh strike force fighters suck This and that. well we sell them the company and then they're like 80 percent of the champions <laughs> after you know six months right so you know it's like but propaganda is propaganda and, and i get it you know he's just being a promoter but you know at the end of the day we we develop you know the the roster and the the future of mma and so that's something I'm really proud of. And the other thing I'm really proud of is that, um, you know, when 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 these guys had an opportunity to go prove themselves, you know, uh, fighting, you know, whoever, fighting the, you know, arguably they said the best in the world, you know, they came out victorious. And I was a guy, honestly, I was like the, the umpire in baseball sitting behind the catcher. And I'm like, strike for us, click, strike for us, click, strike for Okay, UFC gets one. So we're three and one strike force click and I, I, at one time i think we were like 10 and 2 against ufc fighters and i was counting them all because it's it's like your baby you're 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 this is like you're you know you're so proud of these guys and, and everything that we did so to me that that was really was setting up the next you know like i still get calls from Wood and luke rockold and mm-hmm. daniel cormier well, they, a lot of those guys still live close to me so we still hang out but uh, a, a lot of those guys are, are friends and, 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 you know, they, we still have a good communication and, and I think they're appreciative. I talked to Michelle Tate the other day and, you know, we were the first ones to do female fighting as a main event uh, on TV with Cyborg versus uh, Corona in 2009. Uh, and, you know, the Showtime was willing to take the risk with us. We said, look, this is the fight we think we want to put on. And the history behind that, just so you know, is in 06, when Shamrock fought Caesar Gracie, uh, I turned in a back car and they said, oh, women can't fight. The athletic commission said, no, no, women can't fight. I said, what do you mean? They said, the, the women are not allowed to compete in the MMA yet. I said, you say the men can compete, but the women can't compete? And this is in 06. And they're like, yeah, that, that's what we're saying. And it took two years for them to, uh, it took six to eight months for them to compete. But it took a couple years of lobbying with the commission, which we did. Because at that time, of course, you know, women will never fight anywhere here. Women will never fight anywhere there, and we just kept promoting it, promoting it. But they were not allowed to go five-minute rounds. So it took a couple of years for the females, and I think it was the actual fight with Gina and Cyborg that the commission allowed us to do five five-minute rounds. Before that, it was it was uh, three three-minute rounds. That's that's all we could do. So
0: what you know, did you? Um... I think. Uh, you know, y- you're bringing up Chris Cyborg, and 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 she was she was the Mike Tyson of fighters at that time. What when when he had her under contract, what what do you try to do with a woman who is who is so significantly far above the competition? I mean, you even mentioned the the Gina fight, and I can remember that where she came in sort of smiling, prep for the fight, and and it was it was a beatdown, and and she's been the most dominant fighter of of. Women of all time until yeah, uh, yeah. Amanda, effectively. Yeah. But how do you sort of deal with that yep. sort of talent where where she's just so far above everyone else?
1: I'd say tell this tells you a lot about Gina's character because you know Gina and I are friends, and, and we we're you know we were, we had a conversation, and I remember her agent saying, "Gina wants to fight Cyborg," and I said, "Well, hold on, I, I, I was saying, hold on, you know, like why don't we get a tuna fight because she hasn't fought in a couple of years? Because listen, Gina can strike with anybody seriously, you know, and I think that." um You know, the the issue was she had not fought for a long time. And listen, Cyborg's a beast. I don't want to take anything away from her. But if you look at that fight, there was times where Gina was on top of Cyborg and, you know, and let her up. And to me, it's like if she would start throwing some bombs, it could have changed the fight. But I think because of the rust, you know, whatever. Um, But, you know, Cyborg's to me the goat. She's definitely proved her legacy. But in that particular fight, I thought like Gina came from a very big uh, Muay Thai school. And I had had all these fights in Muay Thai, so in my mind, she could strike with anybody, right? And the fight works out the way that it did, but um, you know, it just—it's just to her character, it was. If Gina can't fight Cyborg, she doesn't want to fight. That was the message that came from the agent, because that's she wanted to test herself. I'm saying, fine, test yourself, but you—you you should probably get a couple of tune-ups before you test yourself, you know, to get back into fighting. And, uh, and, she, and she didn't want to do it. She said, no, I, I want to fight Cyborg. She just kept pushing. And so we put the fight together. And uh, then she got her movie offers. And then, you know, the rest is history. But um, when I look at cyborgs, you know, her, her body of work, there's, you know, the, the fight that she had against Amanda, I understand it. But, uh, you know, Katzengano beat Amanda Nunes, right? So it's like, you know, how do you, you, to me, it's like when you look at the overall body of work, Cyborg to me is a goat. So she has proven time and time again that you know she deserves to have that title.
0: Ultimately, Strikeforce ends up getting sold to Zuffa. I think you sold out part of your interest to a larger organization. From what I read online, you effectively became a contractor or contract employee for a period of time of Zuffa in the UFC. Mm-hmm. Did you end up actually doing any work for them, or or did that then follow into any form of like um, you know non compete clause or anything along those lines?
1: Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a a non-compete attached to it for a certain amount of years. And, um, you know, I would, um, you know, I went there, had some nice meetings with Dana and Lorenzo. But listen, I knew, like, I I just know myself and I I know the culture of their company. It's like, this is just a, you know, uh, there's going to be a beginning, a middle and an end to this whole thing. Because I wasn't moving to Vegas. I wasn't, you know, I'm used to running my own company, I'm an entrepreneur. And so I wanted to continue that and I knew I had to wait. So I was really, uh, you know, uh, going to Vegas for the big fights or coming, you know, going to the big fights that they were, and they were very nice, believe me, they were very supportive and, you know, like Lorenzo, everything Lorenzo said that he was gonna do, he did. He's, he's a definitely a man of his word. And um, they were very respectful, you know, to the relationship. And uh, to me, it was just, you know, like, you know, being at their offices and they set up a nice desk for me and you know you're sitting there you're like okay what what am i going to do today like really what is there for me to do they they already know how to run it like you know they they know how to run a fight company so the very first day i got there i just you know honestly i I think i played angry birds for like three hours on my computer (laughs) all right and then i went home and then i never went back because i'm like hey um you guys need me give me a call and you know if if i'll be in san jose doing my thing but i knew it's like look you know they without them coming out and saying it's like you know they they you know they they got they basically achieved what they're what they wanted to do but really it's like you know what they have dana already like they don't they don't what am i going to contribute you know they they had their own thing going and and so to me it was like look this is something i have to just wait out and then in three years i i didn't know uh because you can't predict the future what's going to happen in three years so i didn't know really know what i was going to do uh when the non-compete ended uh and then you know probably about three four months before the non-compete ended i started getting offers from different people to to meet and you know i would say you know the first meeting i took after my non-compete ended was with kevin k from spike tv and uh, i i told kevin originally like i said kevin i don't i don't know if i'm gonna want to do this because you know, it's you guys, you're going to own it and I'm going to build it. And, you know, I, I feel like I should, you know, you know, maybe go do my own thing, you know. And I felt like Bellator was not doing that well at that time and, you know, did not have the roster that it does today. Today has one of the greatest rosters that I've ever been associated with. The best roster in the history of this company, that's for sure. But I, I felt like I'm going to just be an entrepreneur. I'll go build my own ship. It's better. It's gonna be easier for me to build my own ship than to go and, you know, fix fix this ship over here. But the the problem was this, was Kevin um, was really persuasive. And he was really uh, just a genuinely good guy. And I really started like liking his vibe. You know, I said, oh, I, I wish I didn't like this guy so much. Like as far as like, you know, wanting to work with him. I, I think I could learn a lot from this guy. And so uh, I woke up one day And I said, all right, let's just do it. Let's, you know, let's just do it. I'm going to, I called Kevin. I said, all right, Kevin, I'm in, sign me up. Let's go. And that was uh, probably about five and a half years ago. So we're going to talk
0: about how you get involved with, with Bellator because there's, uh, there's, there's a guy named Bjorn Rebny who I want to talk about as well. But uh, prior to um, prior to that, for for those of us uh, that have been fans of the sport for a little while, we remember, at the time how much discussion there was about Fedor Emelianenko potentially signing to the UFC and we certainly remember Dana White talking about that possibility and then ultimately Mm -hmm. him talking about, in his words how difficult it was to work with Fedor and his team and I remember around that Mm -hmm. point in time I think um, through Fedor's manager was it was it Vad Finkelstein who was running
1: Vadim Finkelstein
0: mm-hmm. Finkelstein who was running the M1 promotion, and I, That's right. from my understanding there were a lot of strings attached to it about Fedor being able to go compete or promote elsewhere. You would have an insight on in that because you guys through you know now multiple organizations that have, have been tied to the hip and, and effectively been his his mm-hmm. American promoter. Mm-hmm. What's some of the insights or what was sort of the issues because he has since left uh, Vlad as well.
1: Yeah, Vadim. Yeah. Um, I don't know what happened between the two, but I could just imagine and, like, Fedor is just an honest, trusting individual that is very sincere, and when you when you talk to Fedor, he the, what you see is what you get, right? He's just this genuine, you know, legend, in my opinion, you know, to that has just honest, whatever comes out of his mouth is like honest conversation. There's no ulterior motive or agenda, and, you know, I can't say that about everybody around him for the last, you know, 12 years or when I was dealing with him back in Strike force um, now it seems like he's he is you know doing it on his own when I made this deal with Fedor this time I just called him direct and we made the deal he has a manager you know, kind of like a manager friend but his name is Jerry Millen and he was kind of the middle guy but um, we just make deals direct now Before, Millen was from pride he was it, brought over to run the American yeah, operations was not he that's right mm. yeah and now he's Fedor's guy and, and uh, you know all of the Russian fighters that fight for Fedor are with Jerry and Jerry and I talk a lot and um, and we, we book fights you know through him but before it was Vadim and Vadim had another league and so there was all there's always this conversation about oh yeah Fader you know Fedor wants this and then Fader wants to co-promote Fader wants his logo on the mat Fader didn't want any of that it was Vadim that wanted all that you know you know items that help promote his brand so um, it just got a little bit old, you know, to me. And then I just said, okay, we're not we're not gonna get there. But originally when when they had uh, fallout with affliction, that's when he was supposed to fight Josh Burnett and that fight didn't happen. So Fedor now is a free agent because they didn't fight him. And so he's a free agent. And uh, I just called him and I just said, Hey, Padim, you know, do you want to make a deal uh, with Fedor and Strike Force? And honestly, I had no idea what they were going to say. But I said it's worth the call. So he says, let's meet. We went to Anaheim. I meet with him and meet with Fedor. And and you know, I walk in this room. There's probably like ten people on the Russian side, and there's me and like you know, my, my matchmaker maybe maybe Bob came with me or something. And and uh, I said, look, we have CBS, we have Showtime. We think we could have some great fights for you. Uh, what? Listen, you, you guys want to put this together and. We just sat there and wrote it out and made a deal right there and I, I literally went home and i was thinking how how i think we should announce this pretty soon because this is a pretty big deal but no one knew like for a week nobody knew that we signed Fedor, right so uh I, about a week later we said okay let's announce it so we announced it and that's when the entourage the uh, uh the onslaught from the from dana came was you know because they were upset that we signed Fedor, so they started attacking calling us strike force and, you know, disparaging our company and this and that. And that that's really what happened was uh, once we signed Fedor, then the tide kind of turned on us from uh, those, the other guys, let's call them the other guys. And, uh, you know, and it was really because they wanted him so badly. Uh, and even after we had a contract, um, I know that they had met with them a couple of times behind the scenes to try to to see if they could make a deal and, you know, it it would have been a mess because that losses would have been flying around, but I think they wanted him, wanted him, you know, to, to be on that roster. And why not? Why wouldn't you? I mean, he's the greatest heavyweight fighter of all time period. And when he was fighting for us in 09, 10, 11, that that he was still, you know, doing, doing well in the beginning. And then he started tailing off a little bit. But if you look at his overall body of work, having 10 years of no defeats, it's quite spectacular and amazing the 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 history that this guy has had and and to me he did it all the right way so I'm still a big fan and when he yeah. fights because we we'll, we still owe him two more fights and uh, we'll do them this year and next year
0: and, and what what happened with him because he retired for a period of time and I think most of us mm-hmm. thought he was done then he went and did some some European fights before moving back over here I'd heard some rumblings as well that. Uh, well, at least you notice in the ring, he, he started appearing to become much more devout Christian and, and wearing the cross and stuff. Mm-hmm. And some people have alluded to that a, as an issue, but I'm sure mm-hmm. you would have a bit more inside information on this.
1: You know, when he retired the first time, he went to work for Vladimir Putin and run his MMA organization for the country.
0: I'm not sure if you knew
1: that he was oh, like he was the a minister of, of
0: MMA or something like along yeah, those lines. Yeah, He know. was
1: a minister of MMA, uh, a sport of MMA, right? So mm-hmm. he was working for the government and trying to, you know, do that. And then, uh, I think he 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 missed fighting like a lot of other you know great fighters. He missed fighting and thought he could still fight and contribute. So um, Jerry reached out and and we made a deal. And and listen, if COVID hadn't hit and we hadn't been benched for you know probably six months out of the last you know twelve months, uh, his fight would have already happened and he would have already been fought one of those two. But uh, I'm excited because. Uh, I think the the Fedor fights the, the next two fights will be the end of his legacy. He knows that you know this is the fourth quarter and uh, there's you know there's time there's a certain amount of time that for him. But if you run into him like I ran to him in the, in the hallway the other day, and, and I, I'm not kidding, this guy is skinny. He's in shape, and he trains all the time. He was down there doing the treadmill and you know and, and working out. But he's he's never out of shape. I've seen this guy in just great shape right now.
0: I have to ask you only because you you've mentioned his name, uh, Jerry Jerry Millen, and I, I believe mm-hmm. he was brought in by uh, Dream Stage to run or promote the American mm-hmm. operations for Pride. Mm-hmm. Again, I I don't know the man, I haven't heard of it, but there 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 are certainly some disparaging comments about him as a person. And if I'm not mistaken, I think they originate from Stephen Quadros, who was saying that oh, he really? was. Um, okay outsted him which is how moral was brought in or something but there, there are certainly oh, some people that that, hmm. that don't seem to be a big fan of him so I, I just want to I guess because I've got you here ask about your interactions. yeah
1: you know I tell you I can only tell you my interactions like you know uh, I think he's uh, you know done good for us and you know he's you know MMA is not his business his core business anymore he's has other businesses but he still loves being around and you know we'll we'll hang out and have coffee and tea and I would say, you know, I've never had a problem with Jerry in that sense. But I, I have heard those rumors. I have I have heard those rumors. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, you know, the thir- out of the 36 years of promoting, you know when to step in it and you know when to step out of it. Yeah, yeah, and, and then, not getting en- not get engaged.
0: And I apologize. I'm, I'm not trying to put you in an awkward position because I understand if you're working oh, with them, no, but, no, uh, no but it, you know, it's, as I said, to someone who's on the other side of the world with the internet, it's it's very rare that you get the opportunity to open up these sorts of conversations. Um,
1: well, I can arrange Jerry to call you sometime. You guys should have a conversation
0: i would love it because i i, I thoroughly and enjoy um you know all the the period of well, i like mma but i think for a lot of us you know that, that period of pride moving through that time and uh, and everything else it was that comes mess. out of it so um and the freak shows and everything that ended up being part of dream and rising but um the, the other guy so you end up what, what we're really here and and i'm sorry it's taken me so long to get here because we are here to promote okay. um, you know bellator being oh, yes. in, in yes. australia and and i want to say you yes. return to the organization but you've been with it for about four years now but um uh, you, you know I Another name that that gets sort of bandied around, who who, again, reading online with, without any other knowledge or, or background mm-hmm. to it, is Bjorn Rebney, and uh, mm-hmm. apparently as well, he doesn't have a very good reputation that that follows him and, mm-hmm. through his time in Bellator, and I remember for a period of time that there was a brief period where he seemed to get involved in. Um, you know, we can talk about the unionization of fighters and then a whole bunch of guys mm-hmm. coming out mm-hmm. saying that, oh, this, he's not like that at all. He was really cut through mm-hmm. with contracts, um, your experiences with him. And, and I guess um, you would have been privy to why he got cut from the role, which is how you got reintroduced or, or introduced to the brand. Yeah.
1: You know what I can say? And, and I really mean this necessarily is I've never really dealt with the man. I've never met the man. I've only heard, you know, speculation and different rumors and things like that. But um, when I came on board, they had already uh, let Bjorn go. Uh, and so um, I think that uh, it was, you know, he had a partnership with uh, Viacom. And I think the partnership, you know, didn't work out. And so they wanted some new leadership to come in and, and take over the ship. And, and uh, you know, when I, I think that, you know, he was uh, no longer there. I want to say maybe, you know, two days before I showed up. At the offices and and that was kind of an awkward moment right you walk in there's all the bellator staff and there's like 40 50 of people and you know hey i'm scott coker you know i i've done this before i think i could do a good job here and here's what we're going to do and here's and uh i remember one guy raising his hand in the bag and saying hey um are we all getting fired today (laughs) i'm like no no one's getting fired today boys and girls we got we got a lot of work to do because we had so many fights to promote but I tell you what, the very first fight I went to, it made me realize, oh, man, coming from Strike Force where we did arena fights with big fighters and big production. And, you know, like it was definitely a great show. And to go to the first Bell Bellator fight that I, when I was taking over, uh, it made me realize going, oh, man, we got we got a lot of work to do here. We got a lot, a lot of growth to do. And, you know, listen, it's taken, you know, uh, what, five years to get there, uh, but these fighters, when when you find a fighter like, you know, AJ McKee, or let's say a young Luke Rockhold, or, you know, like these talents, it takes about four or five years to build them to get them competitive to where they can fight anybody in the world. It's not going to happen overnight. People, people think that, you know, you want to build a roster from the bottom up, which I think we're really good at. I think we're good star builders. I think we're good star identifiers, and we know talent extremely well. Uh, we have access to every gym in the country, every manager in the world, and you know, when you but when you pluck somebody from, let's say, you know, a boxing tournament or a jiu-jitsu tournament or, you know, and you're, you're building them, it's not going to be a, a very quick process. It's going to take time. And that's why I think that, you know, now people are able to see the fruits of our labor for the last five and a half years, because if you look at the roster now, the free agent acquisitions, then building from the ground up. That's, that was my same formula. It's the exact same formula I used in Strike Force. And I think that we're gonna have great results because now our guys that we spent all this time building are now able to, you know, to be main events uh in, in some of these big fights. But it's been quite a ride, man. 36 years. It's you know, it's been uh, you know what what they say when I sold when I saw Strike Force, uh, I remember saying to somebody, oh, you know, it seemed like you just you guys just you guys just launched. I said, look, it only took you know twenty four years to become an overnight success, right? Yeah. So it's now thirty six years into it. I, you know, it's been a it's been a roller coaster ride, but so many great high points, uh, and I just love it. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, so let's
0: let's talk about bellator now where you're at and you, you know i've seen some of the other interviews that you do and and, and you touch on a lot of these things um you know mm-hmm. about where you expect to take the brand now um in in previous interviews you you know you mentioned a lot of things that i recognize that, that bellator was just kind of throwing out these continuous tournaments which you know mm-hmm. back in the the original days of, of the UFC and, and mm-hmm. pride and k1 was mm-hmm. was the model but it can get a little bit tiring from time to time and, and you seem to mm-hmm. kind of you know, reinvent that through. Uh, you did the heavyweight Grand Prix with force where you know we talked about the yep. onset of, of Cormier, and, and and kind of returned it to being something big mm-hmm. again. When mm-hmm. when you came into Bellator, um, mm-hmm. what were the immediate issues that you noticed that that you thought you needed to change to to turn this into something more robust?
1: Yeah, you know, um, really it came down to talent. You know, I sat down with Bob Cook actually, and uh, I said, Bob, what do you think? And he's like, well, you really don't have much here, Coker. I'm like, okay, so what does that mean? He goes, you better start signing some people and getting some people over. And I said, well, how come a lot of good fighters, you know, even free agents aren't really, you know, here. I mean, you have Michael Chandler and they had Eddie Alvarez and they had Pitbull at the time, which, you know, those are great fighters, don't get me wrong, but you can't build a league with three or four great athletes. You need to have, you know, a hundred you know, you know, big, big time fighters to make, to make the league. And so um, right now we have 250 athletes uh, signed under contract, but um, I said, okay. So we'll just do what we did in Force. We'll start signing new guys and we signed a kid named Aaron Pico right out of uh, USA wrestling. And he was, you know, thinking about going back to uh, try to go for Olympic trials and, and it didn't work out, but he's one of our first signings. And I started, Telling my guys, okay, we got to look for the next crop, and we got to build them. And I knew we had a TV deal, and we had some sponsorships, and um, but I think what they lacked was they had these tournaments in these small venues, and they would just go from place to place to place, and they would have these fights every you know week. But the problem was the tournaments overlapped, right? So you had one division, and then the next division would start before this division was finished, you know, and so um, they they had so many tournament fights that that it was confusing to follow, you know, and as a fan, you would be, well, wait, who, who, who is this? And what, what, what was that? And and I, and I know the business. So it's, if it's hard for me to follow, then you, you, you know, it's hard for other people, you know, the average fan to follow. So I said, okay, look, we're going to stop that, that thing. We're going to, we're going to take a step back. We're not going to be in the tournaments. We're going to do single fights. We're going to start building from the ground up, buying free agents from the top down. And, you know, we, we did what we had to do. To to survive the first couple of years with the talent base that we had, which was you know I would say moderate at best, um, and we relied on Michael Chandler, we relied on Pitbull, and even Tito Ortiz. You know we had we we fought Tito because really when you look at the roster, those were the, those were the big fighters at the time. So uh, we signed Chael to fight because I knew that him and him and Tito would have some beef and then people would start talking about it. But um, you know I think we, that's we had that's turned into one of the survive. The ultimate
0: Bellator clips is their their pre fight ramblings. uh, I think is going to be one of the most viewed things now
1: that exists for the organization. You know, I'll tell you, it's um, those guys definitely don't like each other. I can tell you that there there's definitely some hate there. But you know, for for us, it drew eyeballs, and we had we like I said, with the roster we had, we had to do what we had to do. And uh, you know, it's 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 just something that we had to deal with. There was no free agents at that time that were really sizable to come over and it's going to take four or five years to build the next roster. So there's a lot of, uh, smoke and mirrors in the early days, let's say, uh, and, but yet, you know, I think it did well. And then, and then when it, when it, when I th- started thinking about the headway tournaments that we had, the tournament, I thought I started thinking about the headways that we have in contract. And I felt really good about, you know, throwing the fight with, um, with Mir and Fedor and all the guys that we had in the headway tournament, uh, and, um, I think Bader fought, Bader won, Bader won the whole thing. Um, and so he's our heavyweight champion, but um, you know, Bader. And I think Phil Davis, were one of the first two to come over uh, from the UFC over to, to Bellator. So we started getting some success and really um, it's all, it's all relationship based because I, I think if Bjorn was still here and, 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 and running Bellator, I think he'd have a hard time signing some of these fighters because, mm. at the end of the day, it's you know it's a, it's a lot about the relationships and how much trust they have in you, and you know, uh, like I said, I, we know all all the players in this business to, to help facilitate you know uh, we, them to bring over the top fighters.
0: You guys seem to be doing two things at the same time, and you, you alluded to this a little bit earlier. So on on the one side, you seem to be bringing in. Uh, Existing fighters who who have a brand name attached to them who, who you know might be closer to you know the, the Sliding down the hill but have a have a lot of mainstay and attention drawn to them and at the same time You've already talked about how you were able to do it in force of of developing um, Characters and storylines and that's one of the interesting things to me because you, you talked about How many events go on right now? So, you know between uh, you know Bellator KSW one UFC you know as an example like a, a one or a ufc fight card now is like eight hours long and as someone who's got you know kids and things it's, it's impossible to watch all of this content when yeah. guys are dropping out after two or three fights because they, they take a loss do you mm-hmm. do you want to just tell me i guess your insights because i assume K- k1 would have done this well you you kind of knew everyone who was on that early heavyweight roster how, mm-hmm. how do you not develop talent but create mm-hmm. the storylines to attract um
1: interest from from viewers you know i'll tell you um Sometimes you have to you have to bark a lot louder than somebody else, and that's what it comes down to. Uh, but there's a lot of noise uh, out there in the community, and when I think about the U.S., um, you know, it's it's really it's really UFC and Bellator here. That's really what it comes down to. And I know uh, one has a great footprint in Asia, and I know that uh, that uh, they have been very successful there. But you know, as far as being a, a success here in the U.S., they're, they're just now starting to dabble in it, and you know they haven't done anything of any significance yet to to you know to to be a player here yet. Uh, I think if they want to do that, they have to come here and and do it. Like we have TV deals all over the world, including you know Singapore and and uh, and Vietnam and and through the VICOM network, uh, but we're not there promoting. So you know that's not going to be our strong base. Our strong base is going to be where we actually promote and show our fights live uh, in the the time zones that you know that uh, are you know for the local, you know, audience. So, meaning when we when we do the, one of the reasons why we did the European fights uh, and expanded was we wanted to grow this brand internationally. So I said, okay guys, we have to start doing fights in Europe because we want to build up Europe to be um, like a European series and be its own sub-series uh, inside Bellator. And then the thought was go to Latin America, which we were would have already done, uh, be, you know, before COVID hit, I think we would already be there right now and do fights in, at least in Brazil. Uh, and then go to Asia and uh, whether Japan, uh, Korea, uh, China, do do fights there and, and maybe create four to six series of fights all over the world. And so now you're probably up to 50 fights a year, but you, you, you're, you're, you're basically localizing the, this talent, these fights. And that's what I mean by 1FC is like, they have to come here and do it with their roster. And they have to put it in the U.S. time zone, uh, you know, which you know I know they're trying to do, but it's not like you're here. When you're here, you're going to get all the press and all the media and you know all the following. And I think people just you know take it a little bit more seriously. And like for instance, even Bellator. Listen, when Bellator goes to London and does fights, we don't get the same interviews and the same hits and the same media in the, in the United States as when we're here in New York or L.A. doing a fight live. So it's just a matter of you know where do you want to focus your energy and your and your growth? And I think that for us, for Bellator, uh, we want to do localized fights in the four different continents and uh, that we talked about, and and the United States, uh, and then maybe we'll create our own little uh, FIFA tournament, World Cup tournament, uh, from there. You know that's definitely something we talked about internally.
0: So. I remember hearing that was the original schedule of what they were trying to do with Tuff is to localize it to each environment and have sort of a Grand Prix, but I guess that, that didn't pick mm-hmm. up on the lines. And you've already addressed my mm-hmm. question there because I was going to ask is, is Bellator expanding, which it certainly is. Um, one of the other questions I had, you know, we talked about existing talent and bringing in big names to get that immediate hit. One of the questions I've already has oftentimes these guys have an existing contract with with an outside organization like the UFC. They simply announce that they're retired, but then somehow two years down the track, they're signed to Bellator. How how does that work? Do they well? Does 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 UFC send a release?
1: No, the contract doesn't go away. The contract basically freezes. So they have to be a true free agent in order to come over. And because you are retired doesn't mean you're a free agent. Mm. You know those 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 rights continue on. Uh, I believe uh, in some of these contracts. So, um, if they are a true free agent, or they went and got their release, you know, from the uh, from different companies, whoever they're with, um, then then the, we're able to have a conversation. But we're not going to, you know, engage in conversations with other other uh, other fighters, other leagues, athletes, because you know that's just going to be a mess. Uh, but you know, if they're a free agent, then we'll talk to them. We 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 have open dialogue with all all the managers and they all know that we're here and listen, we have a pretty uh, hefty budget of, of uh, dollars, million, multi-millions of dollars to, to pay these athletes every year. And, you know, if they, if they want a home, they want another choice or they want a home or want to, you know, basically, right. you know, uh, have a, have a, you know, like a. sometimes it will be a bidding process, right? See what you're worth. You're a free agent. Let's see what you're worth. And that's just, That's just part of the game now, whether it's- Guys like Vandalay,
0: Rampage, Mir, Chael, they were all Mm -hmm. off contract when when you ultimately ended up picking them up. That's correct. Okay, cool. Um, Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Oh, another big one. Uh, the former U.S. president Donald Trump—we uh, know that he had interests in Affliction. Fedor was also yep. his mm-hmm. uh, big man at the mm-hmm. time. You know, you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, Fedor's work with the you know, Ministry of Sport over in Russia. Mm-hmm. Have you had any dealings or any interesting stories of either the former president or the current president of, of Russia?
1: I, I have not spoken to uh, you know the president of Russia, but um, I know that Fedor is close to. Um, the government and, um, uh, you know, he has home. But um, it's it just seems very weird that, you know, we have a lot of lawyers here at ICOM and one of the little things that they do is go get these P1 visas for them, all these fighters that we're dealing with, world-class fighters, and uh, Fader said, I, I don't need that, I'll, I'll be fine, and, you know, two weeks later, he had his own visa his own stamp and his own thing, so uh, I think Fader is definitely connected in, in, in a lot of ways. <laughs>
0: And have you had any uh, dealings with former President Trump, who's who's been you know, very public about his uh, in, enjoyment of the sport? And I, I believe, is, is, is he attended? You certainly had an invite by Fedor to attend Bellator events.
1: Yeah, I think that, um, like, uh, I'm not sure what, you know, their relationship is, but I do know that he was involved uh, with Affliction and he mm. was a partner yes. in Affliction. So, you know, to say the president, of the, well, the former president of the United States uh, was an MMA fight provider, I think that that's pretty cool. <laughs>
0: um fighters union the, this is big talk um mm-hmm. as i said mm-hmm. uh, obviously you know it, it impacts business quite quite heavily and businesses aren't mm-hmm. aren't in favor of it um but you know certainly it's a pretty it's it, it's arguably one of the most cutthroat industries that, that you can have that potentially leaves um, you know, physical damage to someone. What are your thoughts on this and, and how does, I guess, proceeding with this or at least some form of, a, you know, the U.S. is a very different environment. So not only unionization, but, uh, you know, a, a pool of funds for potential uh, medical care after things like uh, CTE and those sorts of issues.
1: You know what, I'll tell you, I think that, you know, we donate money every year to uh, the study. And uh, I think we were part of the Cleveland Clinic study with uh, Senator McCain at the time. Uh, so we've, you know, we've definitely done uh, our part uh, and we'll continue to do our part. Um, when you talk about unions, though, I think it's difficult. And, and I'll tell you why, because this is an individual sport, right? It's not an association of athletes, you know, and you're asking them to become a unionized uh, athlete group because, you know, that means that, you know, a fighter that usually fights twice a year provides for his family is he going to go on strike? Is he not going to go fight and not get his payday to take care of his family? It's, it's not a group sport. It's not like football or baseball or where you need a collective group of people. You know, it's like, you know, in boxing, why, why have they not been able to set up a, uh, a, union in boxing? Because one guy is probably taking home 90% of the revenue in boxing for the last eight years, which is Floyd Mayweather. Right. So, you're, i think i think it's going to be a tough one because um, in the past it just hasn't worked out the way that unions have been successful in combat sports or individual sports and so i think that that's something that they're gonna to have to really take a look at um, and you know when we did strike force you know uh, my partners at the time were uh, the hockey team so you know they they were already setting you know setting it up to where you know we have to give 58 percent of revenue or 55 percent of revenue to the fighters and like they were they're already planning you know in case this went down this road because that's what they were thinking about but it just you know over the last 12 years it just hasn't happened so we'll see we'll we'll, we'll see I mean the, the tide might change but you know if the if the tide changes and uh, and uh, you know the fighters uh, situation changes then we'll adapt with it you know where you know I think that you know one of the things that I, I take pride in is you know, talk to the fighters that I've worked with closely, and, and I think that, you know, we always try to do our best for them and try to make it a win-win situation. Uh, so that's, that's what I would say about uh, our philosophy here at Bellator.
0: Mm. Uh, now that Bellator's back with Showtime and, and airing the events in the U.S., I, I'm interested to get your perspective on, on the generational differences and the popularity between uh, boxing and MMA. Over the last mm-hmm. few years, there seems to be a lot more of a convergence. Um, you know, I was just watching the the last Bellator event, and, and you guys are, are co-promoting or at least mentioning, you know, boxers and events that are coming up. Mm-hmm. But for years and years, we've always heard that boxing was uh, a, a much bigger beast than MMA. Mm-hmm. But we have a lot of names that are, um, you know, crossing over into household mainstream names now what's your perception on, on, you know, it goes through peaks and valleys based on the fighters, but are, are they nearing levels? Boxing still significantly bigger?
1: I mean, listen, when, you know, when Floyd Mayweather is, are you, are you, I think he's the highest paid athlete in the last 10 years, uh, from any sport. Right. So that's, I think you have to factor all that in and, uh, you know, boxing has a rich history, and I love boxing, don't get me wrong, it's like, I, I grew up watching, you know, Sheree Leonard fight, Hearns, Hagler, Duran, you know, that whole era, right towards the end of Ali's time, and and I watch all those great fights, and I watched the Mike Tyson era, which was unbelievable, he was such a monster, uh, and then, you know, then the, then the Oscar era, and then the Hoya era, I mean, the, the Floyd me with era, it's like, you know, there in America, the I think that that one fight in the heavyweight division or the uh, like a welterweight division, or Floyd like when the when the boxer crosses over into that um, because of like a pop culture item, you know, pop culture. Not just if you're a boxing fan, you're going to watch this fight. But Mike Tyson couldn't go anywhere in the planet, you know. He was such a uh, just a, you know like a popular celebrity. He becomes a celebrity, right? And and I think that's what you're what you, what you're seeing is that boxers have that real big peak of, of celebrity status and mean, I think that look I think Connor Connor has definitely gotten there and then I think that you know Rhonda had, had you know has had a taste of that but that's pretty much it think about it you know I mean Floyd Floyd fights he's making two three hundred million dollars right it's you know it's it's just a much different animal and and uh, you know I think that uh, there's a just a handful of fighters in combat sports that have crossed over and again there's there's floyd mayweather and then you know what who's who's been the next closest guy to him that has you know, had that celebrity status has made that kind of money but in in boxing uh, in america and i think around the world there's still room for that boxer to have that big fight and you know like there's nothing like going into a big stadium seeing the ring or you know seeing to meet seeing the cage and just have just a taste of that big 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 event And uh, like I said, there's a couple of fighters in MMA that cross over, but uh, there's been, you know, boxing has such a rich history here. I think that, uh, you know, that uh, it's very accepted here in the U.S.
0: And, uh, you know, you you previously worked with Showtime. What are their insights or or what is their renewed interest in taking Bellatron and and what are they seeing of what they can do with the brand?
1: Yeah, you know, Steven and I had a really good conversation. And, uh, you know, as you know, he's president of Showtime Sports and, and uh, you know he's done such a great job with the mayweather fights and all those great fights that they've done i mean they've been around since 1986 uh, and what i'm excited about working with him was when i went back um to showtime and had the first meeting with him all the same people were there no one has left it was like a reunion mm-hmm. it was like the, the pr staff still the same like Chris is still running it David Dinkins, senior executive producer of production he's still the guy Sheila Mills is still running marketing she's a you know like SVP of marketing there like every every executive is still there it tells you a lot about the culture of of that company that no one wants to leave because they're doing all these great events and it's exciting and, and they see this growth but I told Stephen I said you know I think that this is the greatest roster we've ever had in Bellator history you know that we're right here during this time and and it's just ironic that the, the merger just happened and and now we're able to do this uh and and believe me no one tells stories better than showtime production mm. i mean th- let's be honest showtime boxing has had a history for the last you know so many years of telling these great stories these episodic you know cinematic yeah, the type, pre-fight build up. you know yeah, pre-fight yeah. build-up i mean the fight could be three minutes long but you feel like you got your money's worth because <laughs> you know tyson would knock everybody out so quickly but but the volume and you know getting to know him and his pigeons and this and that and you know same thing with Floyd, all you know, you know, Floyd was what pretty boy Floyd for a while. Yeah. Then he went to Showtime, and then he became Money Mayweather, that's when he took off. Yeah. Right.
0: So, so uh we're getting towards the end of our chat. And again, thank you for your time to, to kind of go down this, this historical road. Yeah, memory lane. Yeah. What uh what are your favorite moments? So there's gotta be, you know, mm-hmm. pieces and time mm-hmm. that stick
1: out for you. I'll tell you. As a martial arts fan, there was nothing like the Shamrock Kung Lee fight. Walking into that stadium and the sound, how loud it was. I mean, I've been in stadiums that have had you know eighty thousand people outside, and and that didn't come close to these you know eighteen thousand people that came to see Kung fight Frank Frank Shamrock fight Kung Lee. That was something that very because it was you know uh, a rivalry uh, you know in the Bay Area. Uh, and then, but I'll tell you this, my favorite fight of all time, which, you know, a lot of fighters would probably be pissed off at me when I, when I say this, but I think I've said it before was when Nick Diaz fought Paul Daly in San Diego and strike Force. to me, that was like, that was the Marvin Hagler, Tommy Hearns fight. That yes. was the, the fight that I was just like floored and the thing just erupted. And, and, and Nick Diaz had another fight with Gomi in pride in Vegas. Yeah, for the I'm very right. first show the go-go that, that, plot uh, yeah the go-go plot it just blew me away and so to me i think about the shamrock Kung lee matchup of course the gina krono cyborg fight that was massively you know we, we had a you know we talked about the history of strike force i think it's top three i always remember
0: um, a shamrock telling calling a shot on baroni telling him, Barone, him to baroni
1: he I called him phil intense. baloney I, I remember that him that phil thing? baloney a lot yeah. But when I think about those fights, like Frank and Kong and Gina and Cyborg, and we had so many great moments in Strike Force, but Daily Diaz was one of my, is probably my all-time favorite fight, you know, in, in the history books. Fantastic.
0: Scott, thank you so much. For thank your you.
1: Today. <laughs> thank you for your time.
0: This episode is brought to you by Romulus IT, offering fast, affordable remote support for common computer problems, including troubleshooting, health checks, virus removal, and software support. Visit RomulusIT.com to get your computer back on track.